I still had that notion of, I am an artist, and I still have to put my stamp on this thing, and I am very passionate and very good about what I do, and I have this skill set. And that's not very well received when you have a client. I'm hired, and graphic designers are hired, as people who are visual communicators. And if I'm not visually communicating my client's idea, I'm not doing my job. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence, an ability that gives people a superior advantage in meeting their aims. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Our featured interview today is with Joanna Burgraff. She is a Chicago-based senior lead for an award-winning creative services team managing 10 brands at Innova International, a company using technology to develop innovative financial products. Having endured an expensive journey to embark on a career change, she found that to follow your passion is the worst piece of advice she's ever gotten. As she states it, Passion is a temporary state of mind. It's a fleeting feeling. Instead, what she advises is to find a breakdown and fix it using your own unique skill set. Joanna, let's give people a sense of, of who you are. I know I introduced you, but say a little bit more so that people get a sense of who you are, what you do. So I currently work for Innova, like you mentioned, and it's a company with 1,200 employees, and we have an internal creative department. I'm one of the senior leaders in the creative department and creative department for our particular company is devised of smaller teams. So we have copywriters, graphic designers, front end developers, productions, as well as social media. At one point in my career or another, I've had a hand in managing each of those different types of teams. Well, I think what I'd like to do is you've been with Influence Ecology for a while and you've been through several phases of a journey and you certainly are quite satisfied in many different ways now. You're in one of our most advanced programs. You've been with us since, gosh, you've been with us for seven years, I think now, six or seven years. And so you've been through a bunch of different changes. I'm interested in this piece in your notes where you talk about that you were dead set on a career change right at the beginning. Why, why were you interested in that? What was going on? I had studied graphic design. That's what I went to school for. It's what I was doing day in and day out. And one day I just realized, like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't. This is not right. It doesn't feel right. And I was also part of another program where we were dealing with who you are in the world, what are you passionate about. The, the whole program was organized around what am I passionate about and what am I going to contribute to the world. So here I am, 27 years old, and I have a career I don't fully love. Dealing with this question, I hired a career coach. 
And so I was in the one program, spent a bunch of money there to figure out you know, what that greater purpose was or that greater passion was in my life. And then I spent a bunch of more money hiring a career coach to lead me down this path that, oh, well, I'm very passionate about fitness and nutrition. I had recently tended to some health things. I was sick for a little while and was able to get better by eating right and changing my eating habits and exercising regularly. And so I thought, great, I want to do this. I want to help people with their fitness and their nutrition and their health. And there's a whole world of blogs of women who do full-time blogging, don't know anything about them. But if you scour the internet, there are all these women who are professional bloggers talking about how they had their career change and that was their life's passion. And I thought, great, I can do that too. Here's my example. And when I entered into the first program with, with you guys at Influence Ecology, I, I was looking at schools. Maybe I don't go to school, but I'm going to learn some general business principles and I can apply it to running a nutrition business. I would partner with a nutritionist and we would develop programs and make this huge, amazing difference in the world. And I'd be so happy and passionate about it. And then when I got into the program, I started to think about the work that I would do day to day if it came to this career change. And the first step would be, oh, I have to go back to school. So what I would be doing day to day is studying, learning science, which I'm not very good at. It doesn't come naturally to me. It never did because I chose the direction of fine art. So that would be the first step. And then the second step would be, okay, I'd have to be telling people how to eat and exercise. And people do not want to talk about that. They are set in their ways. They're very stubborn. And, you know, it was a lot of administrative work that would probably be happening if I was running a business like that. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is not at all what I want to do. And so this distinction that you teach of accurate thinking was instrumental to me and looking at, well, what am I doing day to day? And I had this moment where I thought, okay, well, maybe I don't hate everything about my career. And so I started to make a list and inventory of, well, what is it that I like about graphic design, what is it that I actually do like about the creative department, and I realized I do like the creative, I just don't want to be sitting in front of a computer day in and day out, moving pixels around in Photoshop. If you break it down to its fundamentals, that is what you're doing, although with graphic design you're, you know, you're meeting with people and talking with them about their ideas and what they want to communicate, but the majority of the work is solo work in front of a computer and making things look a particular way. And I'm a more active person. I'm more social. I realized I do have an interest in business. And so I was able to make some requests at work. And I started to work on some of the things that not only interested me, but also would help the team. Okay. Well, let's just stop there for a second because this is very good. I'd love it if you'd say in your own words, the condition of life you're talking about and why it matters to think accurately about that condition. Gosh, it's multiple conditions, though. That's a good point. We should get to that in just a moment because definitely your journey is a demonstration of someone who's now satisfying many, many, many conditions of life. But let's just start with the condition of life work. Why does it matter to understand that condition and to think accurately about it? Absolutely. So previous to influence ecology, work... I thought that was my job. I thought it was synonymous with my job. Where I go every day, the office I sit in, and it never occurred to me that work is an activity. It is the 
thing that I'm doing with my body, you know, whether I'm sitting, am I moving, am I, am I looking at a computer screen, am I talking, am I looking, am I in, on a computer program doing math, and what I'm doing with my mind, so the type of thinking that I do. And so I had never, I had never heard it that way before. And I think simply put, it's the activity of life, the actions that we do day to day. And for me, when I started to distinguish it as that, I started to realize that there are certain types of work that don't fit my personality. There are just certain things I don't like to do. And so that was really where I started. I started with, you know, what do I like to do? What do I not like to do? Oh, all these things that I don't like to do, I'm doing them 80, 90% of the day at work. Well, no wonder I don't like what I'm doing. When I started to look at, well, what would I prefer to do? And it was not that it was a complete shift. It was the difference between getting an assignment and working on an email campaign or a graphic. And instead, I started managing production, meaning if we have anything physical to produce, I was more interested in what kind of material are we going to be looking at. I wanted to look at something tactical. And then another aspect of that is I wanted to learn more about contracts. So I put myself in the type of role where I would be managing vendors, and that would include the contracts and the negotiations of the terms. And so I got to meet with the lawyers face-to-face. I got to be on the phone with the, with the vendors, and I was learning a new vocabulary and a new skill set. And those were the types of things that were newly challenging and the things I wanted to focus on at that time. That's really great. So anything else you want to say about the other conditions before we go back to that? Uh, I think that... A lot of people compartmentalize their conditions of life. And one of the things I learned in influence ecology is that they're all interconnected, but there is a hierarchy to them. If my money's really messed up, I'm going to have a really hard time dealing with, for example, my legacy. So tending to some of those conditions that are a little more basic, a little more fundamental, such as health and money and work lay a really strong foundation for what I'm going to do in terms of pretty much anything, leisure, work, and they're all intertwined and nothing is nothing is quite separate. Very clear. And as I remember it, weren't you also starting a business because you you didn't see that there was any pathway to satisfy your financial aims in your current situation? At least you didn't at that time. You know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My parents have owned a small business for a long time and and actually over the years, several small businesses. And and I knew people who are entrepreneurs and there's this notion that if, you know, you really want to control your future and your destiny, go work for yourself. And I was in that category. I thought there was no way that I'd be able to make much more money in the position I was in. And I thought the only way to go about that was starting my own business. And so I imagine people are wondering, well, what did you do then at your current job to make the money you wanted? So one, I started to be helpful in and around the office <laughs> instead of be annoying. Uh, that's the number one thing. I remember many revelations about that yeah, as well. Yeah. Too. And you know, what? I actually want to do want to focus on that a little bit because I think that really ties to this follow your passion bit. You could be following your passion and be a really big jerk following your passion. And if someone were to go around following these notions that they hear like that, it almost seems like it's okay. I'm going to bulldoze everybody and because I'm passionate about what I'm passionate about and everybody's got to listen to me. 
But instead, you guys taught this distinction about cooperation, about willingly working with others. And I thought, wow, what a novel idea, willingly working with others. At the time, I subscribed to this policy of, oh, I really like my job, except for the people. You hear that quite a bit. Like everything that I do, except for the people, the people are so annoying. Over the years, I, I like to say that I experiment with influence ecology distinctions and what I learn. So I'm like, okay, let me experiment with this. I'm paying for it. <laughs> I'm going to cooperate with people. I'm going to see them as my allies. And I'm going to work on my reputation so that people see me as being incredibly helpful. So I thought about, well, what can I do to make my boss's life easier? She was on vacation and there was a project happening that maybe she didn't fully flesh out. I saw it as an opportunity. I can step in. I can lead this. I'm looking for leadership opportunities. I'm looking to change my reputation. And so I just kept looking for these little opportunities everywhere. And over time, people started to see me as a leader, as somebody who was helpful. And in turn, the recognition came financially from senior leadership and organizationally and in terms of promotions. And our company went public, award stock options for employees, especially senior employees. Those were opportunities I didn't even know were available to me. And it was that simple concept of, of cooperation and, frankly, being helpful. If you'd like to decode the mysteries of an ambitious life, you can register for the Influence Ecology webinar called Ambitious Living, the Eight Defining Principles. This free one-hour webinar offers eight principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. To give you a taste, here's one of the principles. It's called accurate thinking. The essential idea is this. You and I are always transacting to produce a better income, influential identity, and satisfying work. These situations, money, career, and work, are but three of 14 unavoidable conditions of life. If you don't think accurately about these conditions and how you'll satisfy each of them, you will likely produce hardship for yourself and your family. So how do you think accurately about these and other conditions of life? Attend the webinar to find out more. Once registered, you'll receive the 2016 edition of Ambitious Living, a 12-page guide offering a blueprint for the eight defining principles, each of which asks important questions to help direct your aims. To learn more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast, or from your mobile phone, you can click the image art for this episode to find a link to register. Okay, back to the show. So then you said something about how that connected more with follow your bliss or, <laughs> or follow your passion. So connect those dots. Sure. I originally went to school to study painting. So I thought I would be a fine artist for quite some time. And then I shifted to graphic design. And I shifted with the reasoning, well, my ideas aren't that good, so I'm going to get other people's ideas. But I still had that notion of like, well, I am an artist, and I still have to put my stamp on this thing. And I'm very passionate and very good about what I do, and I have this skill set. And that's not very well received when you have a client. <laughs> I'm hired, and graphic designers are hired as people who are visual communicators. And if I'm not visually communicating my client's idea, I'm not doing my job. 
And for me to be passionate about the way a thing should look or the way the color should be, because I know better and it's my life's passion, it just doesn't work. And it leads to a lot of unnecessary conflict. And frankly, you look a jerk to your customers. I think that's a, that's a really good way for us to head into some deeper things about why follow your passion is such bad advice. And in just that little example, I can hear the difference between the attention you have on yourself or the attention that you have on other people. And in my view, there's this decade-long obsession with the self-focused, navel-gazing, poverty-inducing habit (laughs) of finding one's true self-expression. And all of that attention is on you, what you want, what you are about, get my true self out, said, stated, expressed, and all else will turn out. And in your example, you just did a brilliant job of talking about the difference between helping the client satisfy their needs and helping Joanna satisfy her expression. That's just so well said. Is there anything else you want to point to about that? Yeah. As I was preparing to talk to you today about this topic, John, I realized that I mentioned I went to school for a painting originally, and somewhere about halfway through those studies, I stopped. I switched. I'm going to do graphic design. I'm not going to do painting. And I really enjoyed painting. Painting and drawing and fine art and working with my hands were something are things that I've done since I was three years old. As soon as I figured out how to pick up a pencil, I was drawing. I have a, I'm very fortunate. I have a gift for it. I've had extensive study in this area. And I realized that after college, I stopped doing it. And it's around the time that the world started to get permeated with this notion of follow your passion, follow your true self-expression. It became this debilitating thing for me that now all of a sudden I have to identify with being a fine artist as opposed to, well, hey, there's this thing I enjoy doing. And so I see in reflection that, wow, like that really did change my career path. It really changed the direction of my studies from pretty early on. That's just, uh, I can't, and now I want to talk to you about this whole thing. So <laughs> I, I thought about this too in preparing. I thought, I wish I had done research on the zeitgeist of different cultures. I, I began to think about the, the 60s and the attention that went to experiencing and being in the now and in the 70s a little bit more what color is your parachute? There's this world. And I, and I think if we looked over time, you would see that there is an unfolding of ideas that if you think closely and carefully and you spend a lot of time in inquiry and so forth, that you would find your truth, whatever that may be, right? And that many people would then find their role in life, and I'll say their job, their career, how they make a living, by getting in touch with this bliss, this passion. And so if I were to study all that, I would also study the tendency for people to move away from a world of socialness and to a world of a focus on self, as I said before, kind of navel gazing. And I know people And I bet you do too. I know people who spend an enormous amount of time, energy, and effort in a constant state of psychological inquiry 
about who they are and what they want and where they want to go. And it's, it's as if they are now trapped in the habit and that it's reinforced also by this common kind of belief. Do you know people like that? Do you, do you have that sense? Oh, yeah. Lots of, I know lots of people like that. And I would say I, I got stuck in that for a little bit as well. I mean, I look on social media. If you just go on Instagram and Facebook alone, not to mention all the other platforms, and that's what you see. It's follow your dreams. It's up to me. And the dreams came a knocking today. I'm going to fight for what I want until I get it. But in the meantime, I'm broke. But my passion is all I need. Yeah. I've come to the point where I see it and it, it used to make me angry. Now it makes me a little sad. Yeah, me too. Because I've been there. I've been there. I, I've been down that path. And it's a very unfulfilling and sad path because it's a it's like a dog chasing the tail. It's, you're never going to get there. Why I was eager for this interview today was because I thought we have a really great opportunity, you and I, to help people understand why that is a fallacy. If you hear something enough, you hear it over decades and decades, well, that's just how it is. When I grew up, by the way, it was people started to ask me what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. right? What I want to do, what I want to do when I grow up, what I want to be when I grow up, all that kind of stuff. And perhaps now people are asking, well, follow your passion. What are you passionate about? What's your, what's your thing? What's your calling? And in my view, why it's so transactionally wrong is that it doesn't account for all of the others in the world and the environments in which we navigate to survive. And I don't mean survive like claw our way. And I mean thrive. If I'm going to thrive, then I need to be extraordinarily valuable to a world of other people. You know, I th if I may add something to that, I think please. what was one of the things I learned with you guys that was brand, brand, brand new, even I think more foundational for me and pivotal was learning about personalities and transactional behaviors. There are different personalities in this world. Some people are more positive. Some people are more negative. Some people are more objective. Some people are more subjective. And... That was one of the things I tried on when I speak about these experiments. I tried that on like, okay, let me see. If I'm a more objective personality and I tend to like order and I did see that about myself, then why don't I craft a role where I'm going to be successful and happy and satisfied around some of these natural tendencies I have? And then taking it a step further, if I'm equipped with this knowledge that there are other people who have a similar personality to me, or there are these people who have personalities that are different to me, I'm going to adjust my behavior to get things done, to accomplish what we're out to accomplish. And I found that to be one of the most satisfying things of all over the years. When I go pitch an idea to one of our executives, he needs to see it all on a single sheet of paper with bullet points, with the price, how it's gonna look. And then I have another executive who tends to like to think through the idea. So I'm not gonna come to him with such a polished presentation. He wants to be involved in the idea and put his stamp on it. So I'm gonna go to him with more of a concept. In both cases, I'm successful. It's not a one size fits all. I'm successful because I've tailored my communication to fit those people and their personality and what's important to them.
so logical and, and, and all of that, but I don't think people work that way. I, I don't think people work that way at all or, or think that way. I think people tend to say, well, I did all this work. Why don't you like what I'm showing you? Or they don't like me or they don't respect my time I spend on this. And as opposed to that, you're presenting something in the language that accounts for the need they have. And how come that is exciting to you, that approach, compared to perhaps how you did it in the past? There's something, for for me, there's something very satisfying in completing a project. When I first set out to change my reputation at work and become the most helpful person here, I I set this goal for myself that people were going to see me as the person they go to when there's a project that nobody else has been able to figure out. And that's how I was able to build my reputation. So for me, there's something very exciting about, oh, we can't figure out how to do it. Let's give it to Joanna. She's got this. And for the most part, I do. To me, it's problem solving. It's satisfying. I, I really like, and the type of work that's very satisfying to me is when there's an idea, I like figuring out how to make it happen. And all I need is a little bit of inkling of an idea, a little hint of something, and I need a green light that I know I'm going to have resources and we're for sure doing this. And that's it. Then I like to go to town. And for me, the challenge of figuring out how to get people on board, how to get the materials, how to figure out how to make it all come together at the same time, planning the schedule and making sure everything gets done on time and checking in and having lots of different teams working on things. And then in the end, have this thing that was created. That to me is very satisfying. And I didn't know that. I I would have never known that had I not learned some of these distinctions and had I not put aside this follow my passion. I'm not a very easily excitable person. And passion, if you actually look in the dictionary, it's a very strong emotion and feeling. And my emotions are pretty baseline. (laughs) It is what it is. Right. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. It's just different people are different. But a lot of this talk about finding the passion, it's, I almost felt like there was something wrong with me because I couldn't stay excited about something for long enough or I didn't get super excited. But for me, it's like, oh, yay, I can like finish this thing. <laughs> that was, that's enough. And so you started out this whole journey that set on a career change and you didn't like what you were doing, the work, the what you're doing with your mind and your body every day. And now you love what you do with your mind, body every day, and you didn't change your career, and you're more valuable. So let's do one thing here. Let's talk about why that is a demonstration of transactional competence. So in your own words, if you were going to say, well, what is transactional competence, and how does all that demonstrate transactional competence, what might you say? I had in my head, decided that doing the physical work of a task or a project was the highest form of work. And so meaning, say I'm designing a website. I thought, you know, the only work that matters are the people designing it and coding it. That's it. That's the most important work. And in the more senior studies, I've recently learned, well... (laughs) That may not necessarily be the case. You need somebody to come up with the idea. You need somebody to make sure it stays on track. You need somebody to make sure that the customer's needs are being taken care of. 
we need to make sure that we're troubleshooting this thing and coordinating the action of all the different teams and parts of this thing. Somebody needs to make sure that it stays on task and you know, we call that a coordinating action. And I came to realize that, wow, this coordinating action piece is even more important, not to diminish the actual work itself, but if you don't have anybody keeping something on track, everybody left to their own devices, who knows what's gonna happen? Instead, if there is that role, that person, or that team of people making sure that a project such as a website stays on track, then it will happen in the time that's said. And that's very valuable in the marketplace to be predictable, to know how many resources you're gonna need. I'd say that's being transactionally competent, is knowing that it's putting a transaction together that will be effective, that will meet the needs of, of the people it's being designed for and stays on budget and on time. Very good. All right, before we leave the topic of follow your passion, I know that you've been doing some study and some work on this. So is there anything that you want to tell us about that topic? So I grew up drawing and painting, and I gave it up shortly after college. And it wasn't until last year, late last year, that I picked up the paintbrushes again. And this time around, I don't always feel this surge of bliss when I pick up the paintbrushes and make a work of art. It's just, it's very satisfying work. It's often challenging, usually frustrating, but I still like it. If we were always out to find these positive feelings and these positive vibes, what on earth would we ever get done? It's not called work for no reason. <laughs> work isn't always fun. But living a satisfied life isn't always 100% fun. Now, it's not very exciting. It's not follow your dreams. It's where, where do I have the best shot to be most happy moment by moment for the majority of my life? And I think that's the real thing worth pursuing. I recently did an interview with the brothers Corin, and we had a conversation about experience. And in the same way that chase your passion has become a mantra of the last 40 or 50 years. We were talking a little bit about how chasing your experience has become a, a favorite pastime. In fact, you sell experiences. You know, if you look at any travel website, they're selling experiences. There's all kinds of products that are, they're selling experiences. And I think that a lot of people, again, have more and more reason to turn their attention to themselves, to their experience. How's my experience? Am I happy? Am I passionate? Am I thriving? Am I all of that kind of stuff? And one of the things that I want to turn our attention to is this other piece. You said in your notes that for you, you found some satisfaction in finding a need or a breakdown and then going to fix it with your own unique skill set. You've spent a little bit of time describing that you find yourself in your new role. You're active, you're managing people, you're coordinating action, you're doing a different kind of thing. Is there something we should turn our attention to about one's skill set as opposed to one's passion? When I was looking at that career change, right, I have the skill set for working within a creative department working with you know, designers and copywriters and, and web developers. I did not have a skill set to work with people on their nutrition, on their health. I know nothing about you know, chemistry and biology and physiology and all of that. I 
do have a unique skill set and perspective and interest in business. And it's not the most common thing within a creative department. So I saw a real opportunity to differentiate and distinguish myself as the creative with the business mind, the creative who's organized, the creative person who gets things done, the creative person who can get everybody on track. They also say I'm a little bit scary in the office sometimes, which I do on purpose. <laughs> people, people get little chats all the time to do work under the radar. And, and I always tell them, like, have me be the bad guy. Say, hey, if you really want this done, go talk to Joanna. I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, no, 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 no. We don't talk to her unless it really needs to get done. And those are my unique skill sets. And it's not fixed either. You know, I add to them. I work on them. I'm conscious of them. Working in a, in, a, in a corporation, we have evaluations twice a year. And I work on those things. I look at how to improve what I have and what new skill sets will improve that existing skill set. And, you know, the other thing I think I'd just add to that is when you change from being a company that's owned by another publicly traded firm there are new processes and procedures that come into play. And that's not the favorite thing of creative people to focus on and to work on. It's easy for me to see it. It's easy for me to follow it. It's easy for me to adjust. And so just knowing that that's something that, that I can do well, and then also knowing that it would be incredibly valuable to the rest of the team, because frankly, none of the rest of them want to do it. Making that offer to my manager and to the other people on the team, it was almost like, yeah, okay. And, that's not always the case. So I think I was almost lucky in that way. But it's really about finding those opportunities that you know, kind of overlap the need and what you're good at and want to do. You need to have all of those pieces. That's great. Well, I think the last thing that I want to turn our attention to is your personality as a producer. And by that, I mean the four personalities that we talk about here at Influence Ecology, inventor, performer, producer, and judge. So you identify as a producer. And I've been listening to all of this, too, from that filter of your producer. And there are certain things you like to do and certain things you don't like to do. So let's kind of wrap this up by talking about follow your passion and how your passion as a producer might get satisfied as opposed to what you thought it might be originally. This notion of I am a producer, which is an objective person somebody who gets things done. That was very new to me. I didn't relate to myself that way seven years ago when I first started studying with you guys. I thought I was a social person. I thought I was an ideas person. You know, I knew for sure I wasn't a super analytical data person. But just looking at if I'm going to be happiest getting things done, if I'm going to be happiest dealing with timelines and having order, like I probably should adjust my role in my work. And there's nothing that I've seen that says, checklist, this is what passion is. <laughs> follow your dreams and get things done. You know, follow your <laughs> dreams and make a process checklist. <laughs> it's not very sexy. It's not very exciting, but it's what makes the most sense to me. It's what I'm good at. And I get an extreme amount of satisfaction at, at, at doing my job well, more than anything else. And where I can contribute the most in the world, whether it's at my work or a volunteer opportunity, is with that skill set, with that producer mind, with producer capabilities, 
And I think that's also where I'm most helpful to everybody. Sure, I can come up with ideas. I have eight plus years of training and coming up with creative ideas, but it's it's not the most satisfying work for me. And, and frankly, people, inventors, that's the other personality type, the ideas people, they're much better at it than I am. What you can come up with in, in five seconds, it would probably take me 10 hours. So it's also about being true to yourself in, in a way, even though it's, it's not entirely about yourself. Does everybody need to come up with the ideas? Does everybody need to be the friendly chipper one? No. All right. Well, Joanna, I've had the privilege of knowing you for, God, 15 years, 16, so. 17 years, God, something like that. And I love knowing you. I love calling you my friend. I am so happy to have spent time with you today in this interview. And I really appreciate all your words of wisdom and all that you've contributed to people today on the podcast. Any last words for you? Thank you for for the interview and the time and hearing me out. I know this isn't the most popular uh, thing to say. And I greatly appreciate, John, that you and your organization are willing to go out there and poke holes in some of this stuff. I think it's very important. I care very deeply that people live satisfying lives, not just me, like everybody. I think that's a fundamental thing for people. And magazines and social media, they stray people so far off the correct course that I think that the work you do is incredibly important to point that out. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I agree. As I said, this talk is from a webinar led by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles in May of 2015. In this talk, we speak to three different orientations to action. These are self-action, interaction, and transaction. Influence ecology is the leading study of transactional competence. And this talk is designed to illustrate the naivete and danger of self-action very fashionable and widespread orientation to activity in which the individual sees themselves as an overlord of things outside their control, and the attention is on the self. In one way or another, you must deal with people. In one way or another, you must learn how to coordinate action. And we think that the, that the proper, most effective, and ethical way to move with another human being is transactional versus self-actional or interactional. So I want to get into some of these particular tenets. We engage things and others as aspects of our environment. If we know that, we begin to understand how to construct narratives that have others compelled to engage us. But that's not how we are conditioned in the current. Today, the self and cause and effect orientations tend to dominate how we engage others in our environment and the coordination of action with others. The self has taken a predominant role in how most people, especially in the West, choose to act among others. And the old cause and effect relationship, the stimulus and response narrative that has long been, long been outdated, is still alive and well in most of what you can observe in how human beings attempt to coordinate action with each other, and we are here to challenge this notion. Our study of transaction, or the transactional metaphysics that we study, 
they challenge these notions of self and cause and effect. So I want to want to get into that particular set of distinctions. Now, um, I'm going to be uh, pulling most of this work you can find in our book, Transactionalism and Historical Interpretive Study, which you can get to from our website. But these are the fundamental tenets of the metaphysics of transactionalism or transactional approaches that we say allow people to recognize how other people attempt to move in the marketplace as you move to coordinate action with others. There are three basic forms here. The first one is to pay attention to is what we call self-action or self-actional behavior. The next one is interaction or interactional behavior. And the third is transaction. When we talk about individuals as independent, sole and separate entities who are at cause, at cause for their existence, their world, their environment, as the source of all and, and that we somehow escape our environment. That's what we're talking about when we talk about self-acting. When we talk about cause and effect, we're talking about two self-acting entities that are held separate and uh, fundamentally are out causing and moving without concern for change and consider themselves unchangeable entities. And when we talk about transaction, we're talking about a truly transformational relationship of reciprocation. Self-action views the individual as a separate entity from the environment, a kind of spectator in the environment, or worse, an overlord of it. An entity independent and removed from the environment rather than an aspect of it. That's what we mean when we say behavior or action that is self-action. This view allows for all kinds of notions of the individual as cause in the matter of their situations, cause in the matter of their satisfaction, cause in the matter of their conditions of life, single and sole cause, and taken to an extreme radical self-action leads to beliefs that being and thinking alone give way to a thing or a situation becoming so that you in your mind can simply believe a thing into existence or that how you be is enough. It's like radical ontology to be consumed by something enough to say that my own me inside of me and my own being and how I'm going to be is going to affect something as fundamental and objective as an airplane or the like parking places, lights changing, superstitions and forces that were once attributed to the environment as cause, like the volcano is angry with the human culture, so it goes off into uh, situations where circumstances of human existence get relocated is the path of the evolution of thought and behavior of mankind. That those things that were once located in the environment as cause have changed over time, and that new location is the human mind, the consciousness, or even more specifically, our brain. There's a quote from Knowing in the Known that Dewey and Bentley wrote that I absolutely love, and, and it refers to all the spooks, fairies, essences, and entities that once had inhabited portions of matter now took flight to new homes, mostly in or at the human body, and more particularly, 
the human brain. In other words, all of the activity of our environment is somehow related to our thinking of it. And you can hear this in modern day dialogue in every discourse if you just listen keenly to the superstitions, if you listen to the narratives that, that give way to certain kinds of beliefs and practices that somehow those things inside our head are going to manifest themselves in an objective domain like the marketplace, like the objective domain of the physicality of your body inside an environment like a game. I want you to pay attention out there. Now, most of it isn't radical. Most of it is really subtle. I caught myself the other day in one where I just kind of giggled inside this study. It's so present and it is so given by the narratives of Hollywood and popular media that we can now describe things that never existed and never will exist by virtue of the narratives, the powerful narratives that get constructed in, inside this domain. And we, it is perpetuated continually in what we call news, which is nothing more than another form of entertainment. When we consider ourselves as cause we live in a kind of existence, in, especially in the marketplace, that gives way to a certain kind of thinking like, if it is to be, it's up to me solely that I am the one who has to be the solution. This is what we mean by self-acting. Whitehead calls this radical self-acting independent individuality, an orientation of supremacy or power that ignores the conditions of the environment, the concerns of others like the conceit that you can hear every single day if you just listen. Instead of considering that we are a co-creative or a co-constitutive, reciprocal, coexistent aspect, not an entity, but a coexistent reciprocal aspect of an ever-evolving, environing, and dynamic creation called our environment, and that we are in constant reciprocation or exchange it gives way to a self-causal behavior. Self-actual behavior gives way to other serious problems that I hear every single day in, in the, the folks who struggle around this particular concept in their studies and getting work done, in their overwhelm, in their disappointments, in their activities, and so forth. Self-actual behavior, and much of this is, was promulgated by a radical self, self-improvement and the empowerment movements, which you can read about in much of our work, the psychological and ontological problems that self-actual behavior exaggerate are, are done so because of an inaccurate self-appraisal. And think about it like this. In a world where the individual is empowered as the cause, then all matter of situations then come home and find their source in the individual. That means that all the good things but worse, all the bad things. And it's all the bad things. Red lights, parking places become a consequence of some behavior. Bad things happen, must be caused. And when radical self-action is in place, then people take on a diminishment of character. It is hard for them to recognize their own motivations. It is difficult for them to understand why things happen. It must be because of me. If I'm so at cause in the matter of my life that all, all conditions are given by that, when things don't go well, as they often won't, it must be about me. It can't be anything else. 
I'm not doing something or saying something or being in a certain way. This is one of the things that John and I battle continually is the recognition that we are an organism in an environment that is in a constant dynamic. It is reciprocal. If everything isn't you and you don't have the control of every single element or aspect in this environment, there are things you cannot control and never will. And to hold any other orientation is a dangerous one, we say. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008, and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with other people. You can find it and share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can also find us on iTunes to subscribe. We'd love to know what you think, so please take a moment and offer us a review. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guest for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. This episode was produced and edited by Jason Kelly, music by Bellringer Productions, music supervisors Dashley LeCorps and Marcus Bell. Podcast copy and show notes editing and links by Carol Gregory.